let's get ready to study God's Word. Greetings to one and all. Welcome to another episode of Rightly Divide the Word of Truth. This is Andrew S. Baker, and it's time to review another Sabbath school lesson. Please be sure to visit us at biblestudy.aspzone.com, where you can find a link to the current lesson study guide, additional Bible study resources, and all our previous episodes. Before we begin our study, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again that we have the privilege to meet together like this. We pray that all will go well with the technology. We pray that you will help us to rightly divide your words of truth, be with us as we present, and with the listeners as they investigate and study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Lesson 14. Yes, we are doing 14 lessons to close out the year so we can end in the right place. Lesson 14 is entitled, All Things New. This is the final lesson for 2022, and it's focused on what we've been speaking about all quarter. We were talking about death, dying, and the future hope, and lesson 14 is going to focus on the future hope. All things new. Our memory verse is Revelation 21, verse 5. It says, And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Okay, let's turn to our introduction. Scripture gives us this hope. Nevertheless, we according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. That's from 2 Peter 3.13. For some, however, the promise of a new heaven and a new earth seems like a fantasy, stories told by those in power who used the hope of an afterlife to keep the masses in line. The idea being, Though you have it hard at present, one day you will have your reward in heaven. Yeah, this is a, an accusation that is often leveled at religion in that it is used by the powerful to keep the, uh, the peasants and, and those without power in line. Satan has abused many of the things that God has created, and so it's, we should not be surprised that this accusation has come into play. But a study of the scriptures shows us that although men can misinterpret and misapply the scriptures, there's an underlying truth that these promises are focused on. And no no corruption of the scriptures, no false interpretation of the scriptures can take away from that. Okay. And though some people have used the future hope presented in the Bible 
in the way that was discussed earlier. Their abuse doesn't change the truth of the promises that we have regarding the new heaven and the new earth. In the last days, scoffers will ridicule our blessed hope. But their scoffing, just as predicted, can be seen as more evidence that what the Bible says is true, for they are scoffing as the Bible predicted they would. During this week, we will reflect on the glorious promise of a new heaven and a new earth, including the heavenly temple, the presence of God, and the end of death and tears and misery and sin. And finally, the ultimate triumph of God's love, which those are all tied together. Sunday's lesson, a new heaven and a new earth. For some followers of Greek philosophy, the idea that something is physical means that it is bad. That's why for them it is inconceivable to think of a real heaven with real people in the future. In this thinking, for it to be heaven and for it to be good, it must be a purely spiritual state, free from the blemishes found in the physical world here. This is an important point, and I read it. Because that aspect of Greek philosophy permeates a lot of our thinking. It permeates a lot of the thinking that goes on here. Uh, the idea that man can never do better. Think about people you know who aren't into Greek philosophy per se, but who have bought into this idea that man in his fallen state can never be perfect according to what the scripture says God requires. Now, granted, that perfection is of God, but there are many people who believe that perfection for man cannot begin until a glorified body is provided. There are many people who believe that the nature of eternal life will be something different from the physical existence in terms of us not having flesh and blood, etc., and so on. So that concept that they just spoke of, the idea that the physical is, is bad and that only the spiritual is good and that there's a separation, that there are a lot of false doctrines that hinge on that concept. Okay? If something is material, they assert, it cannot be spiritual. And if something is spiritual, it cannot be material. That's their belief. Now, we're given a number of verses here, and let's look at a few of them. Isaiah 65, 17 through 25. We're not going to read all of, the, all of that. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. But be ye glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing and her people a joy. So God is talking about um, significant creation there. Isaiah 66 and verse 2, uh, verses 22 and 23. For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. Okay, this is kind of important, right? 23 says, and it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. He says, 
that just as the new heaven and new earth that he makes will remain, so we will remain. It's kind of important to see those things equivalently. God is saying the new heaven and new earth are real and they will be persistent. And you will be persistent just like that. So we actually need to believe in it for the, for the reason mentioned there. Because our eternity is our persistence. Our immortality is being tied to the persistence of these other things that God says that he's going to create. Let's continue in Sunday. The book of Isaiah provides interesting glimpses of how the earth would have been if Israel as a nation had remained faithful to their covenant with God. Some of the verses we read are included there. The whole environment with its various expressions of life would have grown more and more toward God's original plan meaning the pre-sin plan. However, that plan did not materialize as expected. Then a new plan was established, but now with the church composed of Jews and Gentiles from all nations. The prophecies of Isaiah, therefore, had to be reread from the perspective of the church. I would say it differently. Right? The plan did not materialize as expected, the people did not cooperate with the plan. They failed. Okay? Then a new plan was established. Not exactly. That's not a fair thing to say. Christ's coming was Christ was always going to come. No matter if Israel had been faithful to the covenant, Christ still had to come. Okay? Christ always had to come. That's the first point. Um, they say, but now with the church, the the promise, the covenant with the Jews at Sinai included everybody that should be joined to them. Right? We get hung up on the fact that so many of these passages talk about Israel and Judah. But they always meant Israel and Judah in terms of those who would believe. We have plenty of examples of people who didn't believe and therefore could not participate in the covenant. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram as one big example. Right? The biological children of Abraham were only a part of the covenant as they believed. Ishmael, Esau. These are all examples of people who were biologically connected to Abraham, but did not participate in the covenant because they did not make the choices required to be in the, in the covenant. The covenant always included other people. Rahab comes into the covenant early. Ruth comes into the covenant fairly early. We have plenty of examples of people being brought into the covenant because of their close association with the people of God. They became people of God. So the old covenant and the new covenant share the same function in that regard. It wasn't a new plan. It's the same plan. The only difference between the old covenant and the new covenant is who is making the promises to keep it. 
In the Bible, the inheritance of the saved is called a country. There, the heavenly shepherd leads his flock to fountains of living water. The tree of life yields its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the service of the nations. There are ever-flowing streams, clear as crystal, and beside them waving trees cast their shadows upon the paths prepared for the ransomed of the Lord. There the wide-spreading plains swell into hills of beauty, and the mountains of God rear their lofty summits. On those peaceful plains, besides those Beside those living streams, God's people, so long pilgrims and wanderers, shall find a home. This is from The Great Controversy, page 675. Here's a thought to close out. Sunday, many secular writers, without the hope of eternity as presented in Scripture, have lamented the meaninglessness of human existence. Why is it hard to argue with their point about the meaninglessness of life without a future hope? Without a future hope, it is meaningless. Think about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, where he's arguing back and forth about the resurrection of the dead. And he says, if all we have is the hope of of Christ in this life, no future life, just the knowledge of Christ in this life, if that's all we have, then we will be the most miserable people on earth. It is the future hope that allows all of the misery and chaos here to be overlooked. We can look past this when we see the future. This is the same type of metaphor that Paul uh, used when he was referring to preparing um, for athletic competition, right? When he used that metaphor. And and he points out that an athlete who's looking at this prize and looking at the recognition that comes with it is willing to overlook a whole set of things, right? He's willing to overlook a whole set of things, a lot of pain and sacrifice because of the objective. And it's the same here. It's the same here. So the secular writers are correct about the the hopelessness, the meaninglessness of the current existence if there is no future existence. But God's people know that there is a future existence. Monday's lesson, in the temple of God. Some people speak of heaven itself being God's sanctuary. And to some extent it is. But the book of Revelation refers to a specific sanctuary temple within the New Jerusalem where God's throne and the sea of glass are located. Okay, and he makes reference to Revelation 4, 2 through 6, Revelation 7, 9 through 12, Revelation 15, 5 through 8. There the great multitude of saints from all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues will worship God forever. They show that in Revelation 7. Now, let's look at Revelation 4. 4, 2 through 6, it says, And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat upon the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. 
and there was a rainbow round about the throne, in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal, and in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. Okay? So there was a throne in heaven. They say here a specific sanctuary temple within the New Jerusalem. There are other passages that say that. This passage just talks about the throne there, the the father sitting on the throne and folks sitting around him. Okay, Revelation 7, it says, Great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. Okay? These are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he, and he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. That's what verse 15 says. How can we harmonize the description of the great multitude of the redeemed serving God day and night in his temple with the statement that John saw no temple in the New Jerusalem? Well, I think it's pretty straightforward that the New Jerusalem itself is the temple. The New Jerusalem doesn't have a temple. The New Jerusalem is the temple. Right? It means that God's people, while in the New Jerusalem, reside in the presence of God. In the same way that when you look at the beginning of Revelation 4 and Revelation 7, they talk about a throne, and then surrounding the throne are um, other thrones of other people. So there's a throne of God, and surrounding it are other thrones, and everybody's worshiping him. So they're worshiping him in that space. That, that's why we think of heaven itself being the sanctuary. Because the except for a few verses, the Bible doesn't compartmentalize heaven that way. It generally speaks of heaven, having a throne, God's presence is there, and then the various creatures are worshiping him. And in the New Jerusalem, John didn't see a temple for the Lamb and the for the Father and the Lamb are the temple of it, right? Wherever they are, wherever their presence is, is where worship takes place. And they're occupying the New Jerusalem. Now, there, there are passages that talk about a temple in heaven. We see that, a lot. We see that in Revelation 14, as an example. Um, we see that in Revelation 15. Let's, let's go look at Revelation 15. I meant to do it beforehand. And after that I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. Okay? So there is a temple. And the seven angels came out of the temple having the seven plagues. There is a temple. 
And there is activity that takes place there, intercession and so forth. But in many cases, wherever God is, worship takes place. Right? I think it's important to notice that whenever the Bible shows God sitting on his throne and others sitting around him, there's no mention of a temple explicitly. And whenever they talk about the temple, they don't talk about people sitting around, angels going in and out and ministering. Okay? That can be just two different perspectives on the same spacing. Right, what it's being used for. Because if you notice, worship is shown as happening just in the presence of God. And ministration is shown as happening in the temple. And I'm not saying that those are definitively two different spaces. I'm saying that whenever they talk about the temple, you see ministration, you see vials, you see incense, you see um, mercy, you see justice coming from them. When you just see worship, the temple isn't mentioned per se. Right? That doesn't imply that there's two separate spaces. It, it implies that there are two different functions, focuses. The worship of God happens in the presence of God, but the ministration happens in the temple. Right? Revelation 21.3, look at what it says here. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself shall be with them and be their God. Now, they ask this question here at the end of Monday. What does it mean for us now, still here on earth, that God will be our God and we will be his people? How do we live this out now? Well, practice. Now is the time to begin that. The, the broad scope of God being our God and we being his people, there will be no, no conflict. There'll be no uh, imperfect relationship between God and man. God, his original goal, as we have said previously when studying the, the covenants, his goal was that he should be our God, provide for all of our needs, and we should be his people. We should serve him, worship him, thank him, reflect him. That was always the design. We got sidetracked, and so coming back into the original design is taking a while and is, is going through, um, I don't want to say fits and starts, but there are a lot of pieces and components that have come into play now. But that's always been the game plan. That was what God was aiming for since the creation, since before the creation, whenever he thought about it. Tuesday's lesson, in the presence of God. In the presence of God. Okay. 1 Timothy 6.16 says, Who only hath immortality, speaking of God, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen, nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. Okay? No man has seen or can see. This is referring to us at present. When, when we are 
when we have finally obtained our glorified bodies, we will be able to see him. The Bible also makes that clear. They ask here, does it mean that saints in heaven will never see God the Father? No, it just means that we aren't now. We will get to see God. That's a big thing. It's an awesome thing. And it's an essential thing. If you're going to have a relationship with someone, a face-to-face relationship with them, then you have to be able to see them. That's whatever percentage of relationship you can have without seeing someone. Seeing them will take you up to that 100%. Okay. No man hath seen God at any time. Isn't that an interesting statement? Uh, God there, meaning the Father. Because obviously Adam and Eve saw the Son of God. They met with him in the cool of the day. So no man hath seen God at any time. If we use John 1.18, that verse is better because it says something extra. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. So obviously the him is the Father. He is the Son. This tells you who it's referring to. Right? This tells you who it's referring to. The same Apostle John who stated that no one has ever seen God, no man hath seen God at any time, also declares that we shall see him as he is, and we shall see his face. It can be debatable whether these passages refer to God the Father the Christ. It's not debatable, for exactly the reason that I said. 1 John 4, 12 doesn't give you enough context. It says, no man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Fine, that's, that's there. But in order to answer this question of, are we speaking about the Father or the Son, John 1.18 does make that clear. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. That makes it clear that God in the first part of that sentence is the Father. No man hath seen the Father at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, the Son hath declared the Father. People have seen the Son repeatedly throughout history, even prior to the first advent, right? Moses in the burning bush, Moses on the the mountain, um, Gideon, Abraham on the road to Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Plenty, plenty examples. It's important for us to understand. Okay. Another quote from the Great Controversy page, pages 676 and 677. The people of God are privileged to hold open communion with the Father and the Son. Now we see through a glass darkly. Quoting 1 Corinthians 13, 12. We behold the image of God reflected as in a mirror in the works of nature and in his dealings with men. But then we shall see him face to face without a dimming veil between. We shall stand in his presence and behold the glory of his countenance. Right? Awesome. Read 1 Peter 1, 22. How does this text reveal to us the link between obedience and purifications? 
seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Okay? Seeing that ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. So the Spirit gives us the power to obey the truth, and the act of so doing purifies the soul, purifies the person. So obedience is important. We have to make sure we understand its place correctly. Obedience is not what brings salvation. Salvation brings obedience. But if we accept the obedience that salvation brings and live in harmony with God's word, the act of obeying purifies. That's what it tells us. And it purifies us unto the unfeigned love of the brethren. Okay, Wednesday. Moving along here. No more death and tears. No more death and tears. Okay. They make a good point here, one that I've made on multiple occasions, so we'll look at this first paragraph. The theory of an immortal soul suffering forever in an ever-burning hell contradicts the biblical teaching that the new heaven and the new earth, there'll be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. If the theory of an eternal burning hell were true, then the second death, which would be poorly named, could not, would not eradicate sin and sinners from the universe, but only confine them in an everlasting hell of sorrow and crying. And more, in this case, the universe would never be fully restored to its original perfection. Right? This is important. We need that record of wickedness to be gone. We can't just have it lingering in a corner. It's got to be gone. And if we're going to move on, I mean, think about it. It's one thing if you get to heaven and all the people that you know and love are in and other people are not. But what happens when you have people in your family, good friends of yours, acquaintances, maybe spouse, familial, you know, local, um, immediate family persons? who chose differently, and now they've perished. Well, correction, now they are being tortured persistently. How could you move on? How could we? How could God say, I'm going to wipe away all tears from their eyes, if in fact a reason to cry still exists? Are we supposed to become so heartless that we don't care that there are people who are in misery the whole time? No, that can't be it. That cannot be it. Here's a section from uh, Wednesday's lesson. We can trust that in the final judgment, God will treat every single human being with fairness and love. All our loved ones who died in Christ will be raised from the dead to be with us through eternity. Those unworthy of eternal life will finally cease to exist without having to live in an unpleasant heaven or an ever-burning hell. And they say unpleasant heaven because if someone was, doesn't want heaven, then putting them there would also be torturous, just in a different way. Our greatest comfort derives from the fair way God treats everyone. When death definitively causes, when death definitively ceases to exist, the redeemed will shout joyfully, Where, O death, is thy victory? Where, O oh, death, is 
thy sting. The Lord promised that in the new heaven and new earth he would create, the former things shall not be remembered, nor will they come into mind. <laughs> okay? This does not mean that heaven will be a place of amnesia, but rather that the past will not undermine the enduring joy of heaven. Exactly. And trust me, if there are people moaning and complaining because of persistent torture, it's not going to be it's not going to be possible to forget that or to ignore that or to be unaware of it. Okay? Given everything that we see around us, how can we learn to trust and rejoice in God's goodness and love? We just have to think about it, focus on it, pray about it, speak about it all the time. When we do, we're going to see every reason to give God thanks. When we don't, we may come up with doubts and fears important for us to keep that in in mind all the time it's the only way to develop an attitude of thankfulness and trust his name on their foreheads name on their foreheads let's see here revelation 22 3 to 5 and there shall be no more curse but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. That's really interesting. Inside. And there shall be no night there. The moon will still exist, but there'll be no night. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord hath given them, for the Lord giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. It doesn't say that the sun will go away. It doesn't say that the sun won't shine. We won't need the light that comes from the sun. Because in the presence of the new Jerusalem, God and the Lamb are going to dominate the brightness of the landscape so that there will be no darkness. Okay. After the rebellion of Lucifer and the fall of Adam and Eve, God could have destroyed the two sinners. Yet as an expression of unconditional love for his creatures, God established a merciful plan to save all those who accept what he offers. Thus, this is what is known as the plan of salvation, which, though existing even before the creation of the earth, was first presented to humanity in Eden right after the fall. Okay. As the center of the plan, at the center of the plan of salvation is the promise of eternal life, based on the merits of Jesus, to all who accept by faith the great provision provided at the cross. Before the cross, after the cross, salvation has always been by faith and never by works, however much works are an expression of our salvation. Always. Hebrews 11 is the hall of faith, and all of the people in that hall are New Testament, Old Testament persons. Paul wrote about Abraham, who existed long before the coming of Christ, as an example of salvation by faith. 
For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. Salvation by faith is accepting God's promises and then living in harmony with them. That's what it is, basically. Thus we can have the assurance of salvation if we have accepted Jesus, have surrendered to him, and have claimed his promises, including those of a new life now in him, and if we lean totally on his merits and nothing else. Sentence structure. Ouch. Abraham believed and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And it's the same with us. But we should also understand, just as we spoke about, as Peter was talking about the purification, God considers us righteous when we surrender everything to move in harmony with him. But he also gives us power to be purified and to become righteous. Because at the end of the day, we will become righteous by his power. Okay? What does it mean to have his name written on our foreheads? Symbolically, things that are written in the head are things that we believe and understand and accept. So the writing of of God in the forehead is intended to convey complete acceptance. Not just mental assent, but complete acceptance of who he is and all that he has done for us. Okay? Now, we have two quotes. I will do them in reverse order, the short quote first. Both from The Great Controversy. The first one I'm going to read is the one from page 267. The Great Controversy is ended. Sin and sinners are no more. The entire universe is clean. One pulse of harmony and gladness beats through the vast creation. From him who created all flow life and light and gladness throughout the realms of illimitable space. From the minutest atom to the greatest world, all things, animate and inanimate, in their unshadowed beauty and perfect joy, declare that God is love. Okay? Let's look at the longer passage found in The Great Controversy, page 651. The cross of Christ will be the science and song of the redeemed through all eternity. In Christ glorified, they will behold Christ crucified. Never will it be forgotten that he whose power created and upheld the unnumbered worlds through the vast realms of space, the beloved of God, the majesty of heaven, he whom cherub and shining seraph delighted to adore, humbled himself to uplift fallen man, that he bore the guilt and shame of sin and the hiding of his father's face, till the woes of a lost world broke his heart and crushed out his life on Calvary's cross. That the maker of all worlds, the arbiter of all destinies, should lay aside his glory and humiliate himself from love to man, will ever excite the wonder and adoration of the universe. Wow. It's a lot to think about. 
That's a tremendous amount to think about. And this is why we're going to study this topic forever. The magnitude of what Christ has done for us is going to take forever to fully appreciate. Forever. Revelation 21.5 says, And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy, your goodness, and your love. We thank you for the promise of the blessed hope. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to study and share these lessons together. We thank you that you have created this plan of salvation and offered it to us and give us an opportunity to abide in Christ. Please forgive us of our sins. We thank you for the lessons this quarter. Help us that we will review these and apply them, that we will begin to live according to the the great plan that has been offered for us, that we will begin to live in Christ even today while awaiting the final glorification of our bodies. Please bless us, Lord. Keep us. Help us that we will share this information with others. And when time shall be no more, please save us in your kingdom, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to this podcast. You can email us at biblequestions at asbzone.com. We look forward to hearing from you, whether you have questions, comments, suggestions, or concerns. Don't forget to check out the full description of this episode at biblestudy.asbzone.com to ensure that you can access the linked resources and any related podcast episodes. This podcast is available on all the major platforms such as Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and more. Please remember us in your prayers. Until we meet again next time, may God richly bless you as you prayerfully study and share His Holy Word.